Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, setting the record straight on Alberta's oil sands, a response to a controversial National Geographic profile, also campus free speech. Is there a crisis and is government the solution? We talked about a damning new report on Canada's fighter jet replacement fiasco. Plus, Ottawa's approved drug testing device appears to be generating false positive results. It was April 11th, just about a month ago, that an article was posted at nationalgeographic.com, an article that certainly raised a lot of eyebrows here in Alberta. The headline, this is the world's most destructive oil operation, and it's growing. Asking the question, can Canada develop its climate leadership and its lucrative oil sands too? This is an article taking aim at Alberta's oil sands. And obviously, as the headline, the title implies, uh, taking a very negative view of it. But the problems with this article go much deeper than the tone or the headline. That in fact, the article got a lot of things wrong. Now, I suppose to its credit, National Geographic has gone back to address some of that. You have to go all the way to the bottom of that article to see an editor's note that says this story has been updated to include new information and more complete responses from the oil sands industry. So it's not really an admission that they got things wrong or what specifically they had to go back and address. But apparently it's a couple of times now they had to revise this article. The latest, in fact, occurred just over the weekend. So someone who's been following all of this very closely, in fact, wrote a really interesting and thorough response to this National Geographic article, uh, is Deborah Jeremko, Oil Sands editor with the Daily Oil Bulletin, also editor of JWNenergy.com. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Yes, thank you for having me. So, uh, your your thoughts on how natu- National Geographic approached this issue and, and how open they have been to, to going back and, and addressing where they got things wrong? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, they, uh, so as you mentioned, they published their original article on April 11th. Um, we wrote our response to that article on April 12th, uh, kind of going through point by point on many of these just incredibly egregious errors. And I can give you, I can give you one example because it actually goes into the next point. Um, the, the original article started by saying that um, in Alberta, you can drive on a highway uh, for 500 miles. And on either side of that highway, you'll see there'll be a, a thin screen of trees and behind it, a vast industrial ran- landscape. So the destruction of the oil sands, they're saying, basically can be seen for 500 miles all the way on that trip, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously that's not even, that's completely incorrect. It's not even 500 miles from Edmonton to Fort McMurray. Right. So anyway, um, after we published our article, we got some really, it got, it got us some momentum online, uh, social media. And um, that weekend, National Geographic um, went back and removed that uh, reference to the 500 miles. Uh, they took that out, but they said that they didn't think anything was inaccurate in the article. And then that, that was it. And then um, in the next couple of weeks, like there were several other really incredible examples of the errors. For example, another one, they, the article said there, were, there are 175 oil sands mines in Alberta, which is uh, 
just again, the gross inaccuracy, there are six mining projects and 10 mines. And National Geographic just completely, they didn't, they didn't reference that, which is the truth. They didn't reference the fact that they're, the vast majority of the oil sands is developed by drilling and not by mining. That was just completely left out. So anyway, uh, we, the, it continued to gather momentum um, online. And in fact, uh, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers launched an email campaign to tell National Geographic to, about their errors and the problems that, that, that you know, that causes and stuff. And I, I'm sure there was a lot of other feedback to them as well. And then um, this weekend, so yes, a couple, three weeks later, they had changed it again. And, um, you know, what they've done is they have removed the most egregious of the errors, and they have included more response from industry about its impacts and its benefits. But uh, I have to say, the story itself is still very slanted and inflammatory against the industry, and obviously written with that agenda in mind. And as you noted, they have not used the word correction. They haven't said they corrected anything, so... Right, which see, yeah, seems a little disingenuous. So, you know, if we're trying to to assess how open-minded National Geographic is being about all of this, you know, the fact that they're really not acknowledging that they got anything wrong when they clearly got some things badly wrong, that, that's that's not a good reflection on them, is it? No, I, I think that's a very poor reflection. I mean, it's a, although I, I would say I was pleasantly surprised that they actually went back and changed it, especially with what they did the, this weekend, um, because they did... They did do some substantial changes, but but I wasn't even expecting that. So I mean, it's a it, it's it's a good step, I guess. What is so? By the way, and I should know the author of this article is uh, a Canadian. He's calls himself an environmental journalist, but uh, certainly there there seems to be a bit of an activist uh, slant to to his work. But I mean, someone who is at least Canadian, you know, to get some of these things so badly wrong that that's that's a little surprising. What, what do you know about this uh, Stephen Lee? Um, I don't know a lot about him except what 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 I've read about him online, which is basically kind of what you have said. I mean, I quite honestly, I have this image in my mind of uh, him sitting at his desk in Toronto, and he has a vision in his mind of what he thinks the story of the oil sands is, and then he proceeds to put it out on his computer, and then National Geographic just publishes it. I mean, he uh, he he attempted to make it appear that he had driven this highway and seen the 500 miles of destruction, which is, I think, his intent with that, right? right. But obviously, that's not true. Like, I mean, I, I I absolutely think it's 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 atrocious to have to just tell these. I mean, why would you why would you think that's okay? I don't I don't I don't understand, especially as a Canadian, as you know. Mm. Right, and and certainly, I mean, this it's it's not just a, a story about the oil sands. I mean, it's a story about the Trans Mountain Pipeline right. project, right? And and so I think, in a way, this is an article that's basically trying to make the case against Trans Mountain. Doesn't does it come across that way to you? Absolutely. I mean, one of the the narratives in that story that actually is still part of it is about you know this this false narrative about that the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion is not needed and that the oil demand is imminent is in is. Uh, facing imminent decline, I think, is the language they're using, which, you know, is absolutely not true. Neither one of those things is true. You know, the article still says that uh, First Nations are bitterly against the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is not true. Many First Nations along the route have are supportive of it. You know, I mean, it's it just... It, you're, you're right. I think it does. It's a, it's, the target is the oil sands, but the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the claims about um, oil tankers as well. Yes. So what are they claiming in this article? Um, well, they're claiming that there would be a dramatic increase in oil tankers. Um, they, so I'm just looking for that one. Um, 
but really, I mean, it's the the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion would only increase uh, tankers in the Vancouver Harbor and Salish Sea by 34 tankers per month. And when you're looking at right in that in that same uh, harbor, you're talking about what is it? Sorry. In 2012, 586 oil tankers of greater than 50,000 dried weight tons of a total of 11,000 vessel transits. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, adding 34 tankers to that in a month doesn't seem, I don't know, it's it's, it's just not, I don't think it's it's clearly representative of the actual impacts. Right. Let's talk about why it's important then to to push back on stuff like this and ensure that that uh, publications like National Geographic get the story right. I mean, National Geographic, I think the the, the name still has a lot of prestige, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, right? and, and they have they have global reach. Absolutely, and you know, we even had some of the feedback on uh, social media was there people commenting like, "Oh, I, I, who should I trust?" Uh, an oil executive or National Geographic, and obviously I'm right. not an oil executive for one, but I mean, right. it's what you're saying about that that publication still has so much, uh, you know, respect globally. Um, I mean, I guess the reality is, is that the, okay, there are, you know, there are um, real concerns about the oil sands industry and, you know, what the, the its impacts are, but it's also very well regulated, very stringently regulated and very responsibly developed. And so, it's not. I mean, I just want to say it's not fair because that sounds silly. But I mean, how do you have a convert? How do you have a constructive discussion about something that benefits our country when you're starting on a foundation of gross inaccuracy? So the article, as it now stands, uh, at the second revision that we noted uh, just occurred over the weekend. Are, are there still a number of problems with the article? You know, it's funny because there are in, now it's kind of a mishmash. It's like it, there are parts where it is uh, very slanted uh, and against the industry, but then there are parts where they've obviously in, inserted some comments from the Canadian Association for Petroleum Producers or from the Canadian, uh, sorry, the Oil Sands Community Alliance. I mean, there are still, I, I would argue, yeah, there are still some really significant problems with it. But I mean, there are also, I guess, basically they've given the industry a chance to respond to those problems. Right, which they didn't. The they, they, they didn't do that initially, did they? No, there were a couple. I think there were two, maybe three quotes. Two quotes from the from Cap right near the end, I think. But other than that, they were it was it wasn't represented. All right. Well, people are going to read your piece uh, outlining the twelve ridiculous factual problems in this article at jwnenergy.com. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you. All right. That is uh, Deborah Jeremko, Oil Sands editor with the Daily Oil Bulletin, editor of jwnenergy.com. Well, it's an issue that's come up a lot in recent years. There have been issues uh, here in Alberta, across Canada, certainly across the United States, but all of it falling under the umbrella of campus free speech. Our universities, or in particular publicly funded universities, uh, are they expected to have it? Should they embrace principles of free speech? And should that be a part of the post-secondary experience, being exposed to different points of views, having conversations about controversial issues, even maybe hearing from controversial speakers? Now, in response to some of these controversies, uh, a set of ideas emerged in the United States around what's known as now or become known as the Chicago Principles. They kind of spell out a set of rules for how campuses ought to handle these issues. 
Is this something that governments can mandate? Is this something that governments can enforce? Can this sort of an approach be tied to funding, for example? Story today in the Edmonton Journal, the UCP government will require Alberta post-secondary institutions to adopt controversial free speech policies that allow speakers, no matter how unwelcome, disagreeable, or even deeply offensive, to appear on campus. Hailed by Advanced Education Minister Dimitri Nikolaitis and others as the gold standard, the Chicago principles were developed by the University of Chicago in 2014 to demonstrate a commitment to free speech on U.S. college campuses. Now, in Ontario, the government there has been moving in this direction. And those policies were shaped in part by a professor in the United States, Sagal Ben Porath. Uh, who is a professor of education, philosophy, and political science at the University of Pennsylvania, and joins us on the line here this afternoon, Professor Ben Porath. Great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hello, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I appreciate you joining us here to talk about this issue. Now, how did how did you get involved then in in the policies being shaped in Ontario? Well, the Ford uh, provincial government in Ontario has. Uh, developed a similar demand to the one now putting, uh, being put forth in Alberta that requires uh, higher education institutions, universities and colleges to um, adhere by the Chicago principles or a similar, um, uh, a similar commitment to free speech. This, of course, I had nothing to do with. The Ford government came up with this all by itself. Right. The way that I was involved in some of this process was by supporting some of the universities in Ontario um, in responding to this requirement and basically in trying to think of more productive ways of developing principles of open expression that would be fitting for their institutions rather than using a one-size-fits-all statement like the Chicago principles, which I view as uh, not entirely productive for addressing the free speech controversies that we are seeing right now. Well, yeah, expand on that, because you've written about this issue. You say the principles represent an admirable effort to restate and reinforce colleges and universities' longstanding co- to commitment to free speech. But as you say, that, it, right. that it's not a one-size-fits-all. So where, where does it get it right, and, and where does it miss the mark? Well, of course, the Chicago Principles, which is basically just a short statement of principle expressing a commitment to free speech, is a very important statement about something that colleges and universities already do, as a matter of course, both in the U.S. and in Canada. Namely, they already are um, uh, protecting free speech, uh, expanding the opportunities that their students have to uh, encounter diverse perspectives and views, uh, welcoming different speakers and, uh, you know, uh, opinions on campus. Of course, the controversies right now are focusing on some of the marginal cases where this is not happening. But universities and colleges, in fact, do this uh, every day as part of their regular work. And the Chicago principle um certify or uh, express a renewed commitment to that, and that's perfectly fine. The problem is that they um, fail to recognize that universities and colleges need the freedom to uh, coordinate their responses based on the population that they serve, based on whether they are commuter or residential colleges, because the demands are very different 
based on the kind of histories that they have with their students. And so different colleges and universities need different tools to respond, and they have different tools to respond for a provincial or federal or any other type of government entity to require that all colleges and universities adhere by this limited set of principles is just not a productive exercise. It's not going to help these institutions uh, be more open to open expression and diverse opinions. Uh, it's actually infringing on the institution's um, right to um, operate professionally in the way that they see fit. And it fails to open up a conversation that is happening and is much needed on college campuses about what free speech principles uh, should look like and how they should operate on the different campuses that we have around our, our, our you know, around North America. Mm-hmm. So you don't think the blunt instrument approach by government is, is helpful, but can, can governments encourage universities to, to embrace this or, or try to nudge them in, in the right direction? Well, again, my personal view as being involved in this issue for years now, my personal view is that nudging is not really needed. Of course, uh, we are not perfect. Nobody is. No institutions are. And there is always a place to improve on our responses to student demands, to expectations from the public that we be more hospitable to different views, etc. So, of course, universities can still improve in the work that they do. I actually think that government's interference with the professional operation of um, universities and colleges is not a productive approach. Um, and I worry that the um, politicians who are most uh, keen on promoting or pushing for or nudging, as you said, for improving on free speech practices on campuses tend to be conservative politicians who are, in fact, not particularly worried about free speech practices, but are more worried about the representation of conservative viewpoints on college campuses. Now, again, I'm definitely welcoming um, any opportunity to expand the perspectives that our students are hearing. Some Universities indeed are more liberal than the general population as politicians on the conservative side tend to argue. And so, I mean, it's not true overall, but it's definitely true about some campuses. And it's always important that as part of their overall education and particularly their civic education, students are exposed to diverse views and and perspectives, including political and ideological ones. So it's perfectly fine to look for ways to improve on that. But I don't think that legislating or threatening the funds of public universities or um, creating the false impression that universities are trying to brainwash students or all of these uh, hyperbolic statements about higher education are assisting at all in improving the um, span and the the breadth of opinions that students are exposed to on their campuses. Right. Well, and I mean, yeah, there, there's certainly been some high-profile incidents uh, around North America, and, and there have been controversies. But what's your sense of you know the urgency of this problem, or how big a problem it, it really is? 
Well, the issue of open expression on college campuses is a perennial issue. You know, it comes and goes or it ebbs and flows um, based on political circumstances, on the commitments of students to social movements, on all sorts of issues that we've seen, for instance, in the U.S. during the Vietnam War or during the sweatshop riots. We've seen here around specific political issues uh, in Quebec, for instance. So uh, you see that happening uh, independent of, you know, independent of the specific work that's being done at universities, right? These are young people responding to the political circumstances in their country. I tend to think that there is some uh, pressure right now that is coming from, as I said, specific political quarters, um, to improve on the breadth of or the diversity of opinions being expressed on college campuses. I don't think this is as pressing as the public is encouraged to assume that it is. I think universities are more uh, supportive than most other social institutions, definitely businesses, social media platforms, other contexts, right, are not as supportive of open expression as universities tend to be inherently by their mm-hmm. mission, because this is what we do at universities. We talk about diverse issues and we look to expand the boundaries of knowledge, right? This is our mandate. That's what we do. So I'm not particularly worried. The one thing that I worry about is the pressure coming from legislators and uh, politicians that might infringe on our ability to do our work effectively and productively. I think what the students are doing uh, in terms of protests or in terms of pressure around particular opinions and views, it's something that we need to negotiate as institutions. Sometimes the students are not as educated about how free speech is actually important for equality and justice and um, uh, support for marginalized views of all sorts. So we need to teach them more. We, the universities, the public, the media, like yourself, uh, need to um, educate students and the public more about this work and how it can be done in a democracy. But I definitely don't think that there is a crisis of free speech on college campuses, quite to the contrary. Very interesting. Professor, we'll leave it there. Really appreciate your insight. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you so much, Rob. All right, take care. Uh, that is uh, Sigal Ben Porath, professor of education, philosophy, and political science at the University of Pennsylvania. He was involved in, in crafting some of these policies in Ontario. So to recap, the previous federal government under Stephen Harper uh, came up with a plan to acquire F-35 jet fighters to replace our aging CF-18 fleet. That was the path. The liberals, though, had a different idea. And during the last election, they vowed that they would cancel the F-35 purchase and embark on a new process to have an open competition to find a cheaper alternative to replacing the uh, CF-18s. Well, let's just say it has not gone well. Interestingly, as we get a new report out today from the McDonnell-Laurier Institute, uh, we've also got this report. The U.S. officials have warned the Trudeau government that these plans are incompatible with Canada's obligations as a member of the F-35 stealth fighter program. 
The warnings are in two letters sent to the government last year that were released in a report published by the McDonald laurier Institute think tank. The letters specifically take issue with the government's plan to have each fighter jet maker commit to reinvesting in Canada if its aircraft wins the upcoming competition aimed at buying 88 new planes for $19 billion. While that's standard for most Canadian military contracts, the U.S. officials note that Canada agreed not to apply such a requirement when it signed on as one of nine F-35 partner countries in 2006. Terry Pedro, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. Okay, so we've really irked our allies to the south, which when it comes to defense cooperation, isn't really something we should do or something that we should be very careful about doing. And there was no need for it. So this has turned into a big fiasco. We are now just nearing the end of, of the Liberals' first term and maybe last term in office. We really haven't accomplished anything. We've wasted almost four years. Now, supposedly, we're going to put out for bids later this month. Maybe not sign a contract for new fighter jets until 2022, seven years after the liberals decided they were going to take us down this path. So this new report out today from the McDonald laurier Institute is a pretty scathing assessment of Ottawa's approach here. One that has wasted a lot of time, wasted a lot of money, and irritated a key ally. Joining us to talk more about this report uh, is its author, Richard Shamuka, is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, McDonaldLaurier.ca. Richard, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Um, pleasure to be here. Yeah, I mean, this has been a, a real mess. I mean, we just learned, uh, I guess, last month that uh, perhaps finally now, as we're nearing the end of the Liberals' first mandate, we're going to get a request for bids to provide these new jets. Where did we really go off the rails here? Where did the problems first begin? I think... Part of the blame can be attributed to uh, the previous Conservative uh, government. There were some issues where they had delayed uh, the selection of a fire. Well, they had selected, excuse me, and then after some significant criticism of the OAG, uh, they basically kind of put a reset button. But that really pales in comparison to what has gone on uh, since the Liberal government has came into power. And that really started with their election promise not to select the F-35 and to find a less costly, uh, more, in their view, uh, more appropriate aircraft for Canada's needs. Um, And from that point on, the sort of everything kind of fell apart from there. Uh, What was not apparent to them, uh, based on their sort of understanding of the program and the situation, was that the F-35 was the cheapest option by a significant uh, margin. And in addition to that, uh, the industrial benefits that were Canada was receiving through the program were far in excess of anything they would ever see in another program. That was why the Conservatives had decided to sole source the aircraft in 2010 and were trying to sole source it in 2014 uh, again. Uh, so... That was the kind of the genesis of where we are today. And since that point, the government, the Liberal government, has basically tried to uh, ignore this reality. Uh, in many cases, tried to sort of suppress any sort of uh, negative or viewpoints that sort of contravene what they believe is their sort of policy objective uh, to the significant detriment of uh, Canada security, uh, Canadian uh, aviation industry, and also um, Canada's fiscal health. And that's really the sort of the nub of the story is that this, since the Liberal government has gone to power, that this is this has become an extremely multifaceted mess that uh, no government is really, this government's going to try to educate itself out of. 
Well, you know, especially when when there's a need to replace these fighter jets to have wasted all of this time. I mean, it just it compounds the problem. So, so what what is the situation now? I know we we tried to get some interim replacements from from Australia, but what are what's our, our our military dealing with at the moment? So this is probably the worst part of this um, this part of this crisis. The government is basically, in order to avoid the very sort of um, the embarrassing situation where they would have to have a competition to that would probably select the F-35. They basically came up with a capability gap, which was uh, really a narrative that never existed. And so internal government documents that we obtained have basically shown that their attempt to sort of avoid having to have a competition or to sort of avoid having competition in the, in this current mandate uh, was to sort of have the fighter, uh, have the capability gap and select an interstate building until Canada would have a full competition. And that would select, initially that was the 18 Super Hornets, uh, and then now it's the Australian Jets. Uh, Interim documentation has shown that that is actually exacerbated the problem, that Canada doesn't have um, the pilots or maintainers necessary to increase, to meet this gap that they've sort of identified. And as a result, right now, the Air Force is significantly undermanned or severely undermanned in terms of fighters and technicians, or sorry, excuse me, fighter positive technicians. And that's really causes severe strain on the, on the force. In addition, the, the Australian Hornets are, uh, they don't really add any capability. And in reality, when we're sort of facing a new sort of security environment, like when we're going, when we've made deployments to Eastern Europe, our aircraft are obsolete, effectively obsolete. A lot of the systems date back to the 1980s and against more modern Russian or Chinese systems. They just, there's, they're just, they're placing their positives at a significant risk. Would we have been better off then just, just going ahead with the decision to acquire the F-35s? Absolutely. And that's really uh, sort of a, the sort of nub of this problem as well, is, is that... As far back as 2010, uh, DND and other departments identified that this was the best option. Uh, there was advice given to government that there was there's no better way you can get industrial offsets, better capability, or at a lower cost than selecting the aircraft. And this is why the conservatives really found themselves in kind of a kind of difficult position because they just didn't they didn't want they would like they would have liked to run a competition, but they realized there was no way to run a competition. And then when the Liberals made a campaign promise to have a competition and then stuck to it, they basically put themselves in a, in a difficult corner where they couldn't deliver on this. Now, what has happened since they've created a competition um, and they've tried to mandate the F-35 program to operate in a way that Canada signed onto an agreement in 2006 to say that we, they couldn't operate. And that is really, that's put actually Canada's industrial benefits at risk, which is at this time, I believe it's um, $1.35 billion in contracts that have already been signed and have passed through and probably another $10 billion coming in in the next couple of years. So this situation is really, it caused stresses within the Canadian Fighter Force, which has delayed the fighter, uh, delayed the replacement of the CF-18, and also the United States, who administers the F-35 program along with nine other partner nations. Um, and that's really caused a lot of friction on both sides, and in addition to our own security, where we're basically flying obsolete aircraft probably until 2032, and there's no real way to sort of make them, modernize them in a way to make them effective. 
and so our security is at significant risk. Right. And so this plan to ostensibly find a lower cost option, this this whole mass is actually going to cost us a, a whole lot of money, isn't it? Well, it already has cost us a significant amount of money. I, I, before, with the Super Hornet buy, which was canceled uh, about two years ago now, uh, that was, I believe, $5.9 or $6.9 billion that was about to be spent that uh, that shouldn't have been spent. Now, with the Australian uh, purchase, that that's basically a billion dollars worth of cost that's going to be onto the Canadian Forces budget, and that has no definable benefit. It's, it's really just political cover uh, within the department. Uh, our political cover for within the uh, for within the public, right? That's going to increase their costs, and also we're delaying our modernization of the CFA team. So we're basically flying older jets, which are more costly to operate. So like if you're to drive a, you know, a car that's ten years old or twenty years old, right? Your maintenance yeah. costs increase versus like one that's brand new, right? So that's really what the Canadian forces are facing, and and so this whole this four year delay and then the process to replace it has really caused significant problems for. Canada's national security and, you know, Canada's uh, fiscal uh, situation. Right. And you'd alluded to it as well, the relationship with the United States, because we had been working with the United States uh, on the F-35s, and, and then Canada suddenly goes in, in a different direction. It's not really clear why. What has what this done to that, you know, defense relationship between Canada and the U.S.? Within the fighter side and within the uh, Department of Defense, uh, it's really caused some serious damage to our relationship. I think if you look at, um, uh, I've basically been able to obtain two letters that came from the United States that really sort of, if, you, if you're sort of familiar with this kind of dialogue, these are really terse letters that identify just a question of what are you doing here? This doesn't make any sense. Uh, I mean, the program knows the cost of basically the F-35 and all the other options. They understand what are the industrial benefits. They understand the sort of process and the either sort of situation and the deal that Canada's getting and how Canada's act is basically angered many within the United States government about what we're doing. And and there's it's definitely couched in sort of diplomatic niceties, but when your major ally comes up and sends you a letter and says, Look, you are you you are benefiting from this program in a, in a significant way through the contract that you've already obtained, right? And you have a 50-year horizon for getting uh, contracts in this aircraft, building parts for it, right, across Canada. What this doesn't make any sense. What you're doing here, and we'd like clarification of what you're what you're doing, or where where you're going to go with this, because this doesn't make any sense, mm-hmm. right? And that's and that's a pretty significant. I, I think that's a pretty significant sort of um, issue that's that's emerging. Well, it is right. I mean, this, this whole report makes for a pretty depressing read, and and just you know the depths of this fiasco. But what can we do at this point? It, it doesn't seem as though there's any way of undoing uh, all of this or any of this. It, it would probably not be a good idea to reverse course yet again, cause further delays. What can we possibly do at this point? Uh, I mean, I think this is probably a politically un, um, uh, unlike kind of uh, approach, but Canada can basically buy the F-35s at will because as part of a member of this program, uh, it had basically has a kind of a shortcut to buy an aircraft as it, as it needs whenever it wants, right? right? Um, in 2012, the Conservative government set up what was called the National Fighter Procurement Secretariat, and that identified, it was a... Um, independent body that assessed the situation and came out with conclusions which were never released but were widely understood within government that sort of identified a lot of 
what I'm sort of discussing in this paper and, and the sort of the reality of the program. If that was really dusted off and kind of updated with numbers, it would show the exact same thing. If anything, it would show that the F-35 is in a stronger position because the program is actually purchased or countries have, more countries have purchased aircraft and kind of lowered the price uh, of the aircraft as well in, uh, since 2014. So that would be the sort of ideal approach. Uh, it's not politically, um, it's not politically a desirable thing for a lot of parties because I think a lot of people have an idea that competition is always better. But in this case, when you have an aircraft or a capability, let's say that is you know, lower cost, better industrial benefits, and significantly better capability than anything else, it's a pretty direct. You know, it, 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 most most procurement analysts within D and D would say sole sourcing is your only option because you can't run a competition because the other competitors will say, this is a sham. And the way the Liberal government's kind of done this is conducted this competition is to kind of really handicap the F-35 to make it almost unable to compete, if not unable to compete, as these letters show, and prevent from it, you know, prevent from it to start competing and letting the other options work more expensive, less industrial benefits, and, and less capable to have a, have a chance to win. So I would, my personal view is to take a look at the National Fire Secretary report, and basically rehash that and just purchase the aircraft uh, through the MOU, which is the, the approach that allows us to buy them directly from the U.S. at a lower cost. Well, it would make sense. I guess we'll, we'll see. Maybe not, not holding our breath, but uh, some important points you raise here, Richard. People can read this report for themselves. Again, McDonaldLaurier.ca. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon, Richard. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. All right, that is uh, Richard Shamuka. He is a senior fellow of the McDonald-Laurier Institute. His report is called The Catastrophe, Assessing the Damage from Canada's Fighter Replacement Fiasco. And he doesn't mince words, and understandably so. This has really become a mess, right? And, and you can't put some of the blame on the previous government, to be fair. It was 2010 that the government announced that they were going to buy the F-35s, but they didn't really move on that in the remaining time in office. Uh, and then the liberals just scrapped the whole thing. And, and just created an even bigger mess. So here we are, 2019. These CF-18s were last serviced about 15 years ago to try to extend their life to 2017, maybe 2020 at the latest. And here we are, 2019. Sometime this month, we're expected that the government is going to put out a request for bids that we wouldn't be awarding a contract until 2022 at the earliest. So, yeah, this, this really is a fiasco. In the meantime, what do we expect the Air Force to do? You might have heard of the Draeger 5000, the Draeger drug testing device that uh, is approved for use in Canada. Now, since cannabis is legalized, there's been pressure on the government to uh, ensure the police have tools available to to test for drug-impaired drivers. I mean, impaired driving is illegal, has been for decades, and that applies to drugs as well as to alcohol. So the idea of developing a handy roadside testing device does have a lot of appeal. But there are a lot of problems with the one that has been approved for use in Canada. And a lot of, not a lot of police forces have embraced this. Uh, Calgary police, like a lot of other cities, are for now uh, taking a wait-and-see approach and are not using the Draeger device. Uh, but a Vancouver-based law firm is calling on the federal government to recall this device, to rescind its approval of this device. 
because of numerous problems, including false positive readings. Now, think about that for a second. This is a device that police are going to use to decide whether to charge somebody with impaired driving, a charge that would be predicated on a positive reading. So this is something that we should be very, very concerned about. Joining us to talk more uh, about this testing, what they have found uh, with regard to this device. Very pleased to welcome the program, criminal defense attorney Kyla Lee, uh, part of the Acumen Law Corporation in Vancouver. Kyla, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me again. All right. So the Drager test, we've talked about this before. It is approved for use in Canada. How many police forces that were actually using it do we know? Uh, Very few. I know that they are using it extensively in Manitoba. And uh, there's, of course, the very famous case out of Nova Scotia involving Michelle Gray, um, who was uh, punished on the basis of the Drager drug test 5000 result at the roadside. So how does it work? Essentially, it collects a sample of a person's saliva using a small swab that's rubbed inside the mouth for a minimum of one minute, maximum of four. That's inserted into the device and there's a reagent inside the cap that mixes with the saliva and a chemical reaction takes place. As a result of the chemical reaction that takes place, the device claims to be able to identify what type of drug is in a person's body at a certain threshold concentration. Do we know what the basis for federal approval was? Do we know the the research they relied upon in, in deciding that this was something the police forces could deploy? Not really, because all of the research that they did leading up to the approval of the Drager Drug Test 5000 involved other saliva testing devices. They did a pilot project where they tested three separate devices, one of which is now uh, in the public consultation phase for its own approval. Um, But they pilot tested those three devices and then turned around and approved this one without any field testing by police and very little research done um, other than some analysis by the Forensic Toxicology Lab. And how did you get your hands on one then? We found a source uh, not in Canada that had them privately for sale, um, and we purchased it and imported it into the country. Okay. So let's talk about some of these these findings here. You've been doing some experimentation with this and some very troubling findings with regard to false positives. People eating poppy seeds, for example, or drinking coca tea. So tell us a bit more about what you found there. So we did a number of tests. Uh, involving um, people who had used cannabis as well as other products that we were concerned may give false positive readings, one of which uh, was um, lemon poppy loaf, lemon poppy seed loaf from Tim Hortons. Um, we had several subjects who had uh, not consumed any cocaine, who'd already provided negative readings on the Drager Drug Test 5000 for cocaine um, and for opiates and for THC, who then consumed the, um, consumed the poppy seed loaf and produced positive results were opiates in their system on the uh, Drager Drug Test 5000. And that lasted up to half an hour after the poppy seed cake was last ingested. So there's a retention period in the saliva of up to 30 minutes from when the, um, when the poppy seed cake was ingested by the person. So this is like from, from Tim Hortons, right? I mean, this is something that, that people would, would be able to easily purchase and consume. And you're saying it's possible that someone could test positive for opiates as a result of eating this. Yeah, and and not just easily able to purchase and consume, but also easily able to purchase and consume while driving. Yeah. So if you go through the drive-thru, you get your coffee and your poppy seed loaf, and you're driving along and you're pulled over, all of a sudden you're going to register a positive result for opiates, be subject to an arrest, 
taken back to the police station, put through the drug recognition evaluation, pray that you pass. And if you don't, um, by the time that process unfolds, the poppy seeds will now have been processed enough by your body that you will produce a positive result in a urine sample for opiates. Wow. So... Um, there, there's there's no fallback here necessarily <laughs> that uh, you know even if the machine has got it wrong once they do some some follow up I you know I'll, I'll be fine not necessarily not necessarily no because you know when, when you're consuming something in your mouth it's it's not immediately in your bloodstream and it's not immediately going to be in your urine but if you factor in the time it takes for the investigation to proceed to the next sample collection phase that's supposed to confirm the officer's original opinion that you were impaired, you get to the point just by the passage of time that that's now in your urine as a result of consumption of the poppy seed cake. And we actually saw that borne out in our study because we were doing urine samples from everybody at the same time. And what about the tea? What kind of tea was this? So this is coca leaf tea. Um, so it is made with the leaves of, uh, of the coca plant, the same plant that cocaine comes from. It's available on the shelves of stores all across Canada, especially specialty tea shops. Um, they sell this. Lots of people drink it for energy. Uh, lots of people drink it um, uh, to help them relax to focus um it's you know people claim lots of health benefits it's also something that's frequently used for altitude sickness and um it is uh producing positive results for cocaine when consumed uh within half an hour of taking a saliva test wow and in Canadian law, we have a, a rule now since um, the new legislation for drug-impaired driving came into force and effect that any detectable concentration of cocaine in your system amounts to a criminal offense. So a positive result for cocaine on the saliva tester followed by a positive urine analysis for cocaine means that you have committed a criminal offense. You don't need to prove that the person was impaired by cocaine. Just having it in your system is enough. Yeah, so this is a concern, and especially when we're dealing with the roadside testing protocol, where this isn't necessarily going in, into the criminal justice system, uh, that there's not even really the opportunity to you know, bring an attorney in and, and get some legal representation in dealing with something like this. No, I mean, people who are, who are subject to these tests at the roadside have a suspension of their right to counsel, so they're not entitled to contact a lawyer. There's a prohibition, effectively, on calling a lawyer where you can get the advice, well, hey, did you eat some poppy seed loaf? You'd better tell the officer that and ask him to wait half an hour before doing your test which means that you're going to see cases of false positives. And because lots of provinces like Manitoba and Nova Scotia are punishing people on the basis of the results of the roadside saliva tester um, and keeping it out of the criminal system, you're going to see people losing their licenses and facing significant consequences for innocent behavior that has no impact on their ability to drive a motor vehicle or impair it. Okay, so what should the federal government do at this point? Should they be doing their own tests? Do they need to get these devices off the streets? I think at the very least, they need to be doing their own tests. You know, if they don't trust the results of, of what we obtained, then they can swing by the Tim Hortons, buy themselves a little poppy seed loaf, and repeat the study and see that this is, in fact, uh, in fact, what is going on. It's not a very expensive test to run. The most expensive part of the test is, is doing the saliva analysis, which they're doing anyway. Um, and if they're not willing to do that, then they should be pulling the device uh, from the roads and not continuing to use it to punish or investigate people until they 
they can be absolutely certain that innocent people are not going to be punished on the basis of this. This is what we need to demand in a free and democratic society, because that's the only thing that's consistent with our constitutional rights. And I mean, getting back to the question of whether we need a device like this in the first place, certainly we don't want people who are genuinely under the influence of cannabis or opiates or cocaine or other drugs behind the wheel. But does that mean that we have to find um, a device like this that works? Are there other ways of, of dealing with this issue? There are other ways of dealing with it. And in fact, one of the steps that we were doing in our testing over the weekend was putting people through the physical coordination test, the standardized field sobriety test that are used by police as an alternative to using this device roadside to determine whether somebody was impaired. And we were measuring people's physical performance of complex divided attention tasks to determine whether or not there was any evidence of any impairment. To me, that makes much better sense because you're actually getting an idea of somebody's physical condition, which is much more related to impairment than what's in your saliva. All right, well, we'll see what happens going forward. More at uh, KylaLee.ca. Kyla, thanks for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, that is uh, Vancouver-based uh, criminal defense attorney Kyla Lee with the Acumen Law Corporation. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.